Okay, I'm ready. Okay. Deep breathing. Ready, set, go. Okay, my first name, Sylvie. Last name, Lubau. I would like to answer a few options. Lubau? I know. (laughs) The running joke, Lubau, Lebeau, Lubau. Lebeau? Maybe the PI will tell me how to pronounce my last name. I think that's part of it, yeah. Hello and welcome to Talking Too Loud with Chris Savage. This is the show where we dig into topics that get me, Chris Savage, your host, talking too loud because I tend to talk too loud when I get too excited. So we talk a lot about entrepreneurship, um, really big problems that people are solving, people doing extraordinary and interesting things, and also about the minutia of our lives that uh, get us enraged and excited. And I'm excited today to have with me my producer expert extraordinaire, Sylvie LeBeau. <laughs> Sylvie, thanks for being here. <laughs> Always good to be here. So good to be here. How, um, how are you right now? I've been better. I've been better. And I'm going to tell you why. Okay. Yep. Buckle up. So there Buckled. was... <laughs> Am I supposed to make sound effects? Is that how a podcast yeah. works? Do the... Okay. Was that good? That... Yeah, Chachum. I like Chachum better. Okay. Yeah, there was a hailstorm in Brooklyn a couple nights ago, and it was like came out of nowhere. And I was in my bedroom watching the hail just kind of like fall onto my AC unit and pop, pop like popcorn. And I was like, is my AC unit going to fall out of this window? Because it was intense. So I'm watching the window. My friend calls. She's like, I got stuck in the rain. Can you, when this is over, bring me a t-shirt and some flip-flops? I say, sure, no problem. Turn around to my dresser to grab the t-shirt and notice that my dresser is just covered in dirty plaster water. And I like look up and I like follow the ceiling to where I see drips coming. Then my eyes go down to the bed. It is soaked like uh, soaked. You, so I have a leaky <laughs> roof. <laughs> and you're saying that the, like the the sail the 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 hail like made its way through through the ceiling to your bed? I guess so. I guess so. I mean, my landlords haven't given me a ton of answers, so that's also real cool. Do you think your landlord and was his, responsible for the hail? Oh yeah. He was like, gotta send hail, (laughs) gotta have this shit land right on Sylvie's bed. Yeah. No, but that got me talking too loud in a really different way. That got me leaving some some very um, loud voicemails. Um, There might have been some profanity. Uh, No, there was no profanity. There was just tonal emphasis. You know, it's funny you should say that you you kind of had a flood. We basically had a little flood here of, you know, a sprinkler system gone awry that flooded our basement. And um, we caught it at like, ex- fortunately, exactly the right moment. We had to take the floor apart, which was a which was a large bummer. So that got me talking too loud and in the wrong way as well. So it's a very similar story. I didn't know you were going to have this hail issue. I was going to have this like basement flood. But yeah, I've been excited about this new show on Netflix. It's called Floor is Lava. Ever heard of it? <laughs> I've never heard of it, but I want to know everything. a horrific reality TV thing that I think, I'm not sure if it was shot during the pandemic. I don't think so. But it is so bizarrely, it's a, like low, but basically a show. 
It's like that game floor is lava where kids try to get around a, yes, like a living room. I, okay. I might still it play is, that game. It is time. like that, except it is adults. And they have this like red liquid on the ground and they have all these different obstacles that people have to go across to get to the oh, end. Hell yes. You sold it me. Is, I'm in. It will, so it's funny because I have not really watched reality TV in a long time. And we're like, this show looks... This doesn't look very. We couldn't decide what to watch. We're like, well, let's just watch this, and then I just it just happened. You know, it's just suddenly. Did you five so episodes you wa- in? You- you're just done, and it's just like watching people like balancing on, you know, like uh, there's a space thing, and people are balancing on rockets and falling off, and people are, you know, it's it's ridiculous. And uh, but I found myself unable to turn it off. But the best part of the show, the best part. Is people, you know, they like jump to some chair. There's a spinny chair, and then or the planet, the, the 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 one that's like the space room. They like jump onto a rocket, right? If they fall in the lava, they always make an edit so that the person never comes out. They just like, and they don't tell you that's gonna happen. So someone falls in, and they're just gone. There's just nothing. And to the other two people, if the person, they're just like, they just add. They're just okay. We just keep going ourselves, and it's so funny. Because sometimes you can tell somebody like didn't actually fall all the way in and the producers are like, you get down there, you go in the lava right now because you need it. And, and, and like, sometimes they use, you know, they, sometimes they paint the person out virtually. They just like cover them in red and you can like kind of <laughs> see like a an arm. It's so, so funny. And I just find that I can't, I, I, we're, I'm basically almost through the first season. It's like 10 episodes. I can't even believe I'm admitting this. I'm through like seven. Are you ready to be a contestant on that show? Yes. I think you might be. I'm ready. <laughs> you're, an a- you're an athlete. You Thank are you. an athlete. Yeah, yeah. So someone who I don't think who has ever probably seen Flora's Lava is our guest today, Mike Zani. Mike and I are friends. I've probably known Mike for four or five years. A really funny guy, smart guy. And he, when Mike was just out of school, he actually, uh, he sailed when he was in college and he ended up becoming at age like 26. He was an Olympic sailing coach for the US, which is nuts. Crazy. And then, after, yeah, crazy to be 26 and doing that. I don't know how he did it. And then after that, basically, Mike started doing this thing called being a searcher and working with a search fund, which is you convince people to give you money to buy a company, and then you take control of the company and you run the company and try to scale it. And so Mike has done that like four times. And the current company he's done that with, which is growing and has huge ambitions, really cool company, is called Predictive Index. Uh, it's based in Boston. And basically what they do is they do behavioral assessments so that people can really easily understand and communicate like their behaviors for how they work and how they like to work to each other so you can build stronger teams. Damn. Sailing coach, Olympic sailing coach, and a searcher. I'm ready. I'm ready for this. Let's go. Let's... Mike, Mike, where are you? Are you here? Hello, Mike? (laughs) Hello? 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 Uh, Mike, it's good to see you, man. Chris, it's great to see you. It's been a little bit, it's too long. I mean, normally we see each other at least like once a month and, you know, in person. It's It's been a while now. I know, I know. And we haven't had a chance to have our monthly Harpoon beer together. Yeah. And where you're at the office. No one can see this. You and I can see each other, but this is just the great void of podcasts. So it's right now, let's describe what we can see. I can, I can see that you're in an office. 
I am so excited to be at PI headquarters in Westwood, Mass, uh, near the Blue Hill. The office is practically empty. Everything is sort of turned off. You know, you can't get all the normal free snacks and <laughs> coffee. You're screwed, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <We're> screwed. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, it's good to see you. It's good to talk to you. I'm glad you're here today. And I really wanted you to come on Talking Too Loud because you and I know each other well, but you have done a lot of really incredible stuff that actually... I have never really gotten the chance to ask you about. And I want to talk to you about some of the stuff you did right out of college and search funds and buying companies. And like, you know, I think we've known each other for probably like four or five years at this point. But there's just so many interesting parts to your story that I think a lot of people would love to hear. I'd be thrilled to get into it. You think it's interesting. I I think it's a really strange background that uh, almost kept me from getting into business school. (laughs) Ooh, the plot thickens. The plot thickens. (laughs) But so let's, I mean, so you were an Olympic sailing coach, correct? I was. Wow, you just, you let that right out. What? You didn't even, (laughs) Savage just like didn't even build up to that. No big deal. No big deal. Olympic sailing coach, right? (laughs) Yeah, isn't everybody? (laughs) (laughs) So look, I mean, I've known this. I've known that you've coached at that level. But I don't think I we've we haven't really ever talked about it, right? And I think it's insane. So how how does one and how old were you when you were an Olympic sailing coach? Twenty six. Yeah, paint paint us a pic. Wait, back it up even more. Paint us a picture. How did you get into sailing? Tell us everything. Wow, Sylvie with with the big <laughs> hook. You know, I was I was fortunate to grow up on Cape Cod in the summers and uh, Miami in the winters, so I had perfect sailing conditions and. Typical of Malcolm Gladwell, you know, tipping point. You know, I had well over 10,000 hours of sailing and was 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 good at it. Uh, you know, sailed in college um, and uh, we won a national championship at Brown, which, you know, Brown does not win many, many. Go sporting. Bruno. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good old Bruno. <laughs> you know, I was a I, I was a geochemistry major and I tried to make a career out of geology. I went into environmental uh, consulting work. And it was not my passion. And in order to, to find my passion, to put food on the table, I started coaching and professionally sailing. And next thing I knew, I had... Did you do that, did you do that in school? Or like you, you were right out of school when you started coaching? Well, my summer jobs were coaching, you know, sailing at sort of the club level. Really Got it. more like sailing camp type stuff. Um, but... You know, I was able to pay myself, you know, get paid about $250 a day, you know, when I was 23. And it was a whole lot better than making $9 an hour in a, in a geology lab as I was applying to get a PhD in meteorology. So the next thing I knew, three years went by and I had 12 coaches working for me and a little sailing school. And I was so busy that, you know, I, I couldn't keep up with the demand. And my highest end clients were Olympic hopefuls. And three of my four Olympic hopeful clients made it to the Olympics. And it was insane. It was insane. And that's when the Olympic sailing team, uh, the U.S. sailing team, asked me to be one of the four coaches for the 1996 Savannah or Atlanta Olympics. Ridiculous. And what did they? So you're 26 when that happened. I mean, had you ever, you obviously grew up sailing, was the dream to someday like get to that level or did not even occur to you? No, it, it, it had been a dream, but the dream was I, 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 you know, 
dropped out of Brown my senior year to try and qualify for the 92 Olympics myself and, you know, got close, uh, but didn't, didn't make it as an athlete. And I was thinking of trying out for 96 as an athlete, but, you know, I paid for my own college and I was deep in debt and I figured I'd, I'd make money as opposed to spend money during that period of time. And, and I found it really rewarding, the coaching aspect of it, you know, working with others, the, the technical side, the personal side, you know, getting the most out of your athletes was, was really rewarding. It was probably some, I mean, it was certainly a romantic job, but it was, it was some of the most rewarding uh, work. Is there something about those, those sailors that you like searched for? Or was it, did you, when you look back on it, do you feel like, well, I could have coached anyone into getting into the Olympics? No, it was it was through my connections in college sailing. One of the female athletes, uh, Chris Farrar, went to Brown. She was a year ahead of me. Her partner was at Yale, and uh, the Brown sailing coach was a former Yale sailor. So it was all very incestuous that I knew these people really well, and they asked me to coach them. And you you may ask someone to start coaching you then if it doesn't work out after a week they stop but if it if it does work out <laughs> you continue the gig cool and i'm, I'm I mean, curious oh sorry we both have we're both talking yeah. too loud we, we, we both we'll, have yeah questions. that's you know we're going <laughs> yeah i mean chris you were kind of getting at this before but like what what does coaching entail like what do you have to be kind of good at what do you have to be cognizant of when you're coaching I would I would categorize it into two two these people know how to sail really well. Um, you, you're you're not coaching them about the you know the the details of sailing. What you're trying to do is there's a technical side how to make the boat go a tenth of a percent faster. And this was something that we took all of our athletes and all of our athletes' boats and we measured them precisely to make sure that we knew that all of the boats had the same measurement points. So if you said, I'm pulling my jib in to mark three, the jib is the forward sail, that, that everyone knew that you were pulled into mark three and they might be at three and a half. And we took detailed still photography back before digital. We had to get you know them developed every day. Uh, we took a lot of video for technique and it was a very technical side to make sure that the boat was going through the water as fast as possible. Because that was, if you couldn't be some of the fastest in the world, you'd never win the Olympics. But then after the boats were all going very fast, you get into the psychology of sport. I mean, these people are competing at the highest level. They're putting a lot of pressure on themselves. Their whole life is defined by how they did that race that day. And you had to coach them through their own shit. And there was a lot of it, um, you know, fear of fear of losing, fear of letting people down, you know, not being able to cut it and just tremendous pressure they put on themselves. So you're, I, I was a closet psychologist back then trying to get the most out of my athletes. It was it was a phenomenal experience. And it seems like a, that's been a thread through your career has been like coaching and helping talent grow. Right. It tu- It turns out that helping talent grow has been a, a theme. I, I didn't know it back then. You know, there was this, there was this really interesting U.S. sailing team coach uh, named Skip White. He did not have a good relationship with one of my athletes, but he was one of the most technically gifted 
coaches I've ever met, just brilliant and had so many good suggestions. But he couldn't talk to this athlete because they just didn't connect. So I would say, I, I told him, Skip, just tell me what you need to tell her. I'll do the translation. And if it comes from me, she might listen to it. And we did this for years. Like he would, on the clandestine, you know, clandestine spy on, give advice, write it down, send it to me, and I'd, I'd give the feedback. And it took a while for us to figure out how to get him to be effective with this particular athlete. But that's how quirky these these super high-end athletes are. And then, so you did that. You So you, you were a sailing coach. And then how, you went to business school right after that? Or did you or did you get led by Ledco first? No, I, I, it was at the end of the 96 Olympics, I had spent 330 of the 360 days on the road that year. And it was, it was exhausting. And I was wondering whether I wanted to take this on as a, as, as a life career, because if I did this, I would have never had never met a, a woman, fell in love, had a family and kids. And I really wanted to do that. And you, I've read every sailing book, you know, known to man through history. And it doesn't end well for the sailor's lifestyle. It is, you know, it's a solo act. <laughs> it has always been that way. Um, yeah. I feel like there's a great, a great We weren't going to go there, but song. yeah. There's a great song in there somewhere. There is. Yeah. It's a sea shanty or, or some <laughs> sort of country about someone stole my truck and my girl. <laughs> or my boat. <laughs> or my boat. So this, this sailboat manufacturer was thinking about acquiring Sunfish and Laser, which were two very popular sailboats in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, this was the 90s. The brands were past their heyday. But he asked me, he says, listen, you're a science major. You've done modeling. Could you do some acquisition modeling for me? And I'm like, I have no idea what that is. He says, well, you can model in Excel. I'm like... I can model in Excel. He says, I'll teach you the finance side. You do the modeling and we'll find out whether we should buy these companies. So I got involved with the acquisition of Sunfish and Laser back in 1996, early 97. And these, these guys invested, bought the company, let me participate. And after, after that went down, uh, they asked me to be the sort of sales and marketing director. And I loved it. It was the first time business was the first time since sailing that I found something that was just super energizing and engaging and loved it, loved it. But after three years of being in the sailing marine industry, I realized that it was a pretty thin, it was a pretty thin industry. A lot of people were in that industry for lifestyle, not for, you know, because that's where the real competition was. So I went to business. Like they, it wasn't, it wasn't, yeah, it was like very much like people pick sailing because they love sailing and they want to be sailing versus like you got a taste for, I mean, you were 27, 28 when this was all happening, I imagine. So you got a taste for like, all right, we bought these companies and now we're trying to run them. And I'm, I, and like, this is scary, but it, but exciting. How do I do more of that? It was scary and exciting. And I started reading things like The Economist and The Wall Street Journal and being like, wow, there's a whole lot more there. So when I went to business school, I didn't do it just to get an MBA because it was going to help me get a promotion. I, I did it like a trade school. Like I need to learn the trade of business. And, and I actually applied to three business schools and got rejected from two. 
and was lucky enough to get into Harvard. Like, you're like, how, how does that happen? Yeah, what happened there? I, I think they, they, they were looking for a little wing nut in the stew. Like, <laughs> we're looking for a crazy sailor to, like, you know, balance out everything else we got. Yeah, or all the out. bankers and consultants. Exactly. <laughs> but so then you, you, you went to Harvard and then you decided you wanted to get into the game of buying more companies, right? Like, that's, that's what you ended up, where you ended up going. I had an epiphany my, my first year. I didn't know what I wanted to do is the, the short answer, but I did know I wanted to get educated in business. And we did a case on search funds. And the short story on search funds is you buy, an entrepreneur can buy a used company with other people's money. So you don't need your own good idea. You can buy someone else's idea and you don't need your own money. And I was like, great, I don't have an idea and I don't have any money. Uh, but I want to run a company and no one would really give me a job because I was the wingnut sailor. So yeah. you buy a company and you put yourself in charge. It was, it was like, I want to do that. And I think, you know, search funds are interesting because I think many people don't know that that it exists as an option, right? Like when we what look at the normal it? options yeah, for entrepreneurship, it's like, well, start a thing or go raise money to start a thing or start a thing and then raise money to scale it out. And like, it's, I feel like it's they're not super well known yet, although I, I keep hearing about more people starting to do them. Do you think it's like something that more entrepreneurs should be considering? And how does that and how does it really work? Like, do you you say you want to buy a company, just you just like get a check from somebody first and then you go searching, or do you find the company and then convince them? Like, how do you put the pieces together? What does that actually look like? So a search fund, um, you know, one or two entrepreneurs gets together. Uh, they're looking, you know, they have the interest in buying a company. What they do is they, they reach out to a group of high net worth individuals. And the reason high net worth individuals is because they have to be willing to almost throw away money. They give the two searchers or the single searcher funds to search. So we ended up getting $35,000 from 10 people. So we had a pool of $350,000. That paid for Daniel and I to have a small office look for companies, do due, due diligence on them, which might be financial due diligence, it might be environmental due diligence, some legal work, in order to get a company right to the, right to the point of sale. When, they get, when you get close to sale, you go to those same 10 high net worth individuals and say, great, we're going to buy this company. For, we bought our first one for six and a half million bucks. We said, we need three and a half million dollars because we're only going to get three million of debt. You have one, at least one-tenth of that. Do you want to put your one-tenth in? And some do and some don't. So we, we basically, it, you think of it as almost like a club of people who come together and they say, one, we believe in you, in Daniel and Mike. We think you guys are good people and can pull this off. Two, they wouldn't mind owning a small business because ultimately that's what they're going to be owning. And three, they think the deal that we put forth of how they make money and how we make money makes sense. And this was all figured out by a bunch of HBS and Stanford professors who designed the search fund for entrepreneurs to buy companies that had no secession plan. You know, you, you started a company, you might have made, say you had it a foundry, and your kids are like, I don't want to go into the business of a foundry, you know, melting metal and pouring it into molds. That, like, that's... I want to go into a computer's dad. 
So they have these companies, these old founders have these companies that no one wants to take them. And a bunch of search funders are buying them and running them. So you're a searcher, you're looking for things like how did you find the predictive index? Well, the, the predictive index is actually the fourth company that Daniel and I have have done together. And we were just lucky to find a company to buy. But we ran into the predictive index when we were running Ledco. In 2006, Daniel and I joined this group, Vistage, which is you and I are in a Vistage group together. It's peer advisory. We are. We are. And you, you learn a lot. On my very first day of Vistage, my chair had given me the predictive index and I took it. And one of my peers introduced me. He says, Dan, please introduce Mike. And I said, how is Dan going to introduce me? He doesn't know me. I've never met Dan. Yeah. And, and then yeah. Who, Dan who, does he, who does he think he is? Who does he yeah. think he is? Yeah. He introduces yeah, you think me interesting in me like that. Yeah. He introduces me in a way that undressed me behaviorally. Like, Mike does this. He doesn't do that well. And I was like, did you talk to my mother? Like, I was freaked out. I said, what happened to me? And he says, oh, yeah. you, did, you did this predictive index thing. And so we became clients, really adopted it. And in 2009, when we sold Ledco, we, we, we returned capital to our investors. Our investors said, do it again. So we tried to buy the predictive index. We pitched the family and the board. We got really close, but the family was not ready to sell. So Daniel and I went and bought two other companies, but always stayed close to the predictive index. And in 2014, the trustee called us and said, the daughter and the mother passed away. There are no living heirs. They, they really liked you and Daniel. You cared, about, you cared about the business. You cared about the company. They wanted you to own it. So if you're willing to meet the appraised value, we'll sell the company to you. And we were just like, oh, my God, dream job. Like, this was the one. This was the one we wanted because we had such affinity for talent. It had been such an important part of us running and growing three other companies. And we had all sorts of ideas on what to do with it once we bought it. And the predictive, it's funny because my experience with the predictive index, I mean, you were running the company at this time, but was very similar, which is I got into Vistage, which is like a, a leadership group. Um, and they, I took this, they're like, put it, fill out these things. Like, are you, is your behavior like this or like that? Like this, like that. And it took like, I don't know, three minutes to do. I thought I was basically just filling out some, you know, four, like it's so fast. And then it spit out this description of my, who I am and like how I act. And it was eerily accurate. And it kind of scared me. Like, how did you, you can get this kind of information from somebody so quickly. It was very, it's one of those things that doesn't seem possible. It's like, how could you spend three minutes you know, filling out something that's just simple, like multiple choice. And then other people now understand like how you like to make decisions and how you like to communicate. But yeah, it really does. It does work. It's crazy. We call that the magic trick. And it, it, the average person takes six and a half minutes to take. Yeah, I'm pretty fast. That's pretty that's fast. my thing. Yeah. Well, yeah. your profile <laughs> would have suggested you would be under humble flex, humble yeah. flex. It did. Well, it is. My profile is, is a maverick, obviously. And so impatient. Yes. Ah, I'm going to, can I take this? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Oh yeah. 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 So, so Mike, you you look for the predictive index. You actually buy the company. I know that it was like, I believe was not really a tech company when you bought it, right? Like it was basically just like, you filled out these forms and 
by paper or something. Is that right? It was designed in pencil and paper, and people were pencil still doing it in pencil and paper. But their their SaaS platform was no more than a surveying tool with a file repository for previously taken surveys. There was no analytics that you could really do on the platform. Got it. And then now, like, can you give us any idea of scale in terms of how many assessments are taken or anything like that? So people can have an, uh, an idea of like how much PI is used? Yeah, well, I think we have about four and a half million assessments uh, taken a year with individual data subjects, uh, which is the, the survey taker. And it's mostly uh, our clients are businesses uh, or organizations with people. We have about 8,000 clients around the world. You can take the assessment in over 70 languages because you want it to be in your native tongue. And it's because it's a stimulus response tool. You're stimulated by certain words and not by others. So when you say, how do you know that about us, about me? It's because you told me. We, but you, yeah. we, you, you gave us credit for all the things you checked or didn't check. It's, it's, it's much more technically savvy now because we're doing a lot of benchmarking data on positions. The typical people in these roles have these positions. The people in, in these roles have that position, uh, uh, that behavioral profile. And we're helping, we're helping people design their organizations and teams so that they can be really high performing. And when you think about, I mean, it's pretty interesting that you're basically, you're running a company now that all it does is help other people create the best team that they can, right? Like that's the goal, like hire people that are the right fit, help have, you know, uh, the complementary skill sets on a team and complementary behaviors on a team. And does, is it, is it funny to you or was it, is, I mean, I, from my perspective, it's kind of fun to see that like, that's what you're doing for all these other people, which is basically what you were doing as a sailing coach too, right? It was like, except you were working with the people who you already knew they were really, really good, but like putting them together on teams and helping them like operate at their best. Yeah. It, it does turn out that being a sailing coach was, was pretty good training for coaching direct reports or teams that you report to on how to optimize them. And now I'm sort of like the coach of the coaches because, you know, we're getting to build the tools which help talent professionals, help companies. It, it really is a rewarding job for me. It, I did learn a lot about leadership and managing high-performing people and teams while coaching. And I get to look back at my dad. He says, what are you doing as a sailing coach? That's a ne'er-do-well job. And I'm like, no, look. <laughs> <laughs> Help! I'm helping people. <laughs> There's a cynical view. I mean, a sailing coach is a great job when you're 26, but if you're a 45 year old sailing coach, people, it's kind of like being the 45 year old lifeguard. It's kind of weird. So I am lucky that I'm not still a sailing coach. I think you could be a lifeguard if you wanted. <laughs> Thanks. A little zinc yeah, on the nose. I think you got that. Got that. Got that in you. Yeah, a little zinc. You'd be all good. Um, so, I mean, when you think, let's talk about building great teams, because I know you've built an incredible team at PI, but I want to zero in on one thing, which I think like a lot of entrepreneurs have not had the, when you have, when you haven't yet bought a company and jumped in with 45 people, or even had a team of five people, I think a lot of people struggle with how to actually coach the people on their team. Like, how do you give people feedback? Uh, how do you help them grow? And how do you think about that now? Because like, 
you've had so much experience and so much experience helping others do that. When, like, if you have someone on your team who's a you know a really smart person, a really hard worker, but maybe behaviorally is different from other folks, like, how do you actually coach them to greatness? Like, what 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 advice would you give someone who is running their first team? I think attitudinally, you want you you have to believe that you want your people to be better at their job than you could be. So when we first buy a company. Daniel and I are sort of better at everyone's job than they are. And the goal is to hire and then train and coach people so that they are so much better than you at their job. And you're actually grooming them to take your job. You should always, at every level, groom someone to take your job. And someone says, that seems counterintuitive. I'm going to lose my job. Yeah. And you go, yeah. no, you get to do a better job. As soon as you train them to do your job, you get to move on to do something cooler. And we, we've been successful at leveraging ourselves to get our team to really be amazing. And all of our players at almost every level is, is better than their boss at their job. And when you build a team like that, it's, it's super, super rewarding and I think to do it, it's it's pretty hands-on. And it reminds me of most people know of Coach K or Coach Krzyzewski from Duke. And he is famous for, he's a little guy, and he is actually in practices. He's on the court, like grabbing the hips of these giant human beings, moving them around, teaching them where to stand, how to position, how to block out, you know, how to hold their hands. Like he's super involved in the mentoring of these young athletes and he's one of the greatest college coaches ever and he's one of the greatest olympic coaches ever because he's willing to get in there and get dirty and really show these young people how to do it right and i do think there's an element if you want a world-class team as a leader you got to go in there but then when the game time comes you got to let them play the game i think that's a really key point like, I think a lot of people misconstrue coaching for micromanagement. You know, like, they're, like, thinking, like, oh, I'm going to help teach this person how to do this, and I'm going to stay really close to it, versus saying, like, let me give you some feedback, really. Let me give you a lot of feedback or get or connect with other people who are going to give you feedback or make sure you have the right challenge, but you have to actually let the people do it themselves and get out of the way. And if you don't, it never works, right? Like, it can't scale, it's also interesting to hear you talk about like grooming people for your job and getting them to take on bigger challenges. Cause I, I've seen this many times where managers have had a fear that if they, you know, they're really good at something. And so if they like kind of give up the reins to somebody else, what are they going to do? Oh my God. But of course, if the company is growing, then there's more opportunities. So if you help the company grow and you get other people to step up, then there's almost always bigger things to jump into. And it's a, it's a weird thing to wrap your mind around. It's a trust that like the things you're doing are making an impact. And that if they make an impact on the business, there'll be, there'll be more challenges and opportunities. Chris, you said something interesting. I think growing companies uh, create that environment. But I also think even if a company's not growing, it's the, it's, it's the abundance mindset that it's not a fixed pie. There's a growing pie that even if a company might even be worst case scenario shrinking, like in the time of COVID, that there are still opportunities for people to do important, better, more challenging work somewhere in the organization. Um, it could even be a lot, you know, a, a, a lateral move 
but it's new to them and they really get their, to sink their teeth into something. You also said something really interesting about giving feedback. Um, I know you and I have both been influenced by this character, Michael Alasso, who talks about truthful, specific, positive feedback. And if you give someone enough TSP or truthful, specific, positive feedback, then they know you have their back. So when it's time to give them some growth feedback, and I'm using air quotes, growth feedback is feedback that may not be something you want to say publicly, but it's like, hey, I think you could do this better. Setting up that growth feedback comes from the positive stuff, the really overwhelming, specific, positive stuff, because you don't think I'm an asshole. You're like, wow, Mike has my back. He wouldn't have given me this feedback unless he really meant it. I I want to be better. Therefore, I'm going to listen, try and own it and embrace that feedback. Yeah, I I mean, I think it's just you said the trust piece is so critical. It's right. If you trust someone cares about you, then they they care about you when they're giving you feedback, which is I like I, you know, radical candor is like very similar to that, to the Michael Alasso stuff. And I, I think a lot about that, which is like you need to continually give people positive feedback so that when there is something that you want to give them feedback on that isn't positive, they know that you actually have their back and you've been paying close attention. And I I mean, feedback is a gift, right? Like if you really give someone good feedback, it is a gift to help them grow. So yeah, it's, I hear you on that too. It's, and it's one of those things, it's not obvious at first, right? Like, Like a lot, it's so easy to fall in that trap of you only give positive feedback that isn't specific because it seems like people like that, but they quickly realize you're not actually paying attention or, or you don't actually care. And it's, it's difficult to consistently give, you know, specific positive feedback. Um, you, you have to exercise that muscle because if, if left to your own devices, you, you won't do it enough. It won't be specific enough, but it can really be, you can make it habitual and it's such a powerful management tool. That's awesome. So, Mike, you're here on Talking Too Loud. You know that when I get excited, I obviously talk too loud. You've experienced that many times. What what has you talking too loud right now? I I think it's better work, better world. The, the fact that if companies work their butt off to make their employees love what they do, love who they work with, you know, be inspired by the mission of the company, that we send people home, and people work too hard. We'll send people home more energized, better prepared to be spouses, parents, community members, you know, read another book to their kid. Like, we can, we can improve the world by being better business leaders. And never more true when you see things like Black Lives Matter and realize the injustice that's going on. Businesses can get involved. And better work, better world is inspirational to me. It's inspirational to our company. And if we don't do it as a society, we're going to suck for it. That's what I have, you know, talking too loud about. That's awesome. I think the the only thing I was thinking about was, you know, we are in this insane time right now. You know, we are dealing with a global pandemic that unfortunately... Um, we have not, we, we have not treated it as like an adversary as we should in, in this country. And so it is prolonging the time that we are dealing with that. 
but there's all and there's a lot of companies that are struggling but there's also a lot of other opportunity right now i think um a lot of things are being remade a lot of things are being shaken up and i think like i'd love to hear you know you've you've been in this position of finding companies and buying them and finding things where people don't want to run the business anymore right like you gave the example with Ledco or Predictive Index, the secession challenges, my bet would be there's going to be a, actually a lot of companies where people are like, I don't want to run it anymore. Not through this. Do you see opportunities for entrepreneurs today that you think that people should be paying attention to that your worldview lets you see given the current environment um, for people to find companies or innovate or like what what do you look at today that makes you hopeful for entrepreneurship? Oh, it. I think I think every recession is such an opportunity for entrepreneurship. Now, clearly, as you as you state, there will be a bunch of older founders who are looking at the hole that we've dug ourselves into with uh, this recession uh, and the pandemic that they're just not going to want to climb out of that climb that next hill. You know, they, mentally they could have said, "Oh, I got another year or two. And now all of a sudden they go, God, I got another five years and God, it's awful. So I think, yes, for search fund types, there's going to be a lot of opportunity. But for the, 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 the innovation, when you think about the displacement of our workforce, 30 to 40 million people were, you know, either furloughed or fired, you know, in an eight week period. And then another 200 million were forced to work from home. There are really interesting products that are just starting to scratch the surface on things like online collaboration. You know, products like Menti, the polling software, or Miro and Figma, which let you collaborate, you know, asymmetrically. Uh, even your product, Soapbox, which lets you communicate really easily, you know, asynchronously. Uh, you know, we're just scratching the surface and there's so many opportunities that my little brain can't get its arm around. But in five, 10 years, you're like, that was such a crucible for innovation around this new way of work, which we don't even know what it is yet. It's, it's astounding. I, I, I wish I was less busy to put my investor hat on so that I could look for those opportunities. You know, but right now we're, very focused on what we're doing at the Predictive Index. But I think those, those entrepreneurs who have the time and creativity and foresight are, are going to crush it because of this. Yeah, I agree with you. It's a, the way I look at it is just like we're accelerating so many different trends, some of them that had just begun. And now, you know, things that we thought were going to take 10 years are going to take two years, three years. And it is interesting to see, like, I feel like we I've just started to see new startups launching products that clearly began at the beginning of the pandemic, watching everyone working from home. And there's, I think there's going to be more of it. And I think it's one of the only things, you know, I, I'm, I'm such an optimist when it comes to entrepreneurship. And it's one of the only things that gives me hope that like, is like, you know, if people can, if you, you always had that idea you wanted to start, but you could never think like, well, how will I fit it in with my work? And it's like, well, you actually... Ha you can at this moment because you have to, and at that part's horrible. But like, I'm I'm hopeful that there will be things that come out of this 
that are exciting and that like advance advance our society. And it's, you know, it's not going to be overnight, but uh, it's one of the things that I that I look at when I when I look for things that could be positive to come out of this whole thing. I, I and I and I think not only in the corporate side, the business side, but on humanity. I think just like many of us have said, where were you on 9-11? And everyone has a story. Just like our parents before us, where were you when Kennedy was shot? I think this is not a singular point in time like 9-11 or Kennedy being shot. But I think what did you do during the pandemic, during this work from home piece? Did, did you help your neighbor? Did you get fit? Did you quit smoking? Did you you know, move in with your in-laws, you know, like, what did you do to, to, to help the world? And there's so many great stories out there of people helping because this pandemic has not been fair. It's being way tougher on lower income, lower socioeconomic, um, lower educated. And, you know, I, I hope we come out of this and people say, wow, this changed the world for the better because there's that opportunity. That's my hope. I'm hopeful too. Yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful too. Look, Mike, it's been so great to see you. I wish it was in person, but uh, this will have to do. And yeah, thanks for taking some time out of the day to, to talk too loud with me. Chris, as much as I love you, I'm, I'm glad it's not in person. You know, I, I, I don't want to <laughs> double my bubble with you. <laughs> double my bubble. I'm going to double my bubble with you. Um, what, what, a, what a treat. So that, so that was fun and, was, uh, you know, cool fun. to hear about like, yeah, like I think like talent optimization and the idea of, you know, the behavioral assessments, I think it's really interesting when building teams. So I thought it'd be fun to, uh, to take a look at, uh, at you, what assessment you got here, Sylvie, what did, and you just took it, right? You just took the PI. I took the PI. I'm really nervous to open this up. Here we go, though. Rip, rip the PI. <laughs> Here we go. Let's see if it if it if it figured you out. Okay, clicking it open. Okay. Oh, bam! You're a promoter. I'm a You're promoter. A promoter. <laughs> so what what does it say? Oh What's my a promoter? God. A promoter is a casual, uninhibited, and persuasive extrovert with a tendency for informality. Does that seem right to you? <laughs> yes, yes. In certain, yes. Uninhibited. Wow, this is crazy. So <laughs> the self one is like, is yourself, but the self-concept, I believe, is like what you think others expect of you. Yeah. So you think others are expected of you to be insanely social. Is that true? I do feel like, pressure sometimes like you're the funny one you're the jokey one like you have to kind of bring yeah. that energy every single day and well i feel like we're about to get really real <laughs> we could do a whole podcast we're real yeah we could do a whole podcast just about pi tests yeah. i think like my so i think my socialness is like twofold i think i really want people to like me <laughs> And I think people 
like once they've seen sort of what I was saying before, once once they've seen like a social side to someone, they assume that that's like the default. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, it also looks like on the the C, which is like how driving slash steady you are, like you're even assumed to be even more driving than you are normally, right? Yeah. And also like you feel like you have to be really flexible, which I, I guess like more flexible than you would normally be in your own life. Yeah, I think that's true. I think like, I think at work for whatever reason, yeah, that like sort of adaptability like Sylvie, be adaptable has been kind of drilled into me. Maybe it's because I'm like, I can be stubborn. And so it feels like the expectation is to be the opposite. Or I think other people want me to be the opposite. Dang, this is weird. This is weird. It's telling me my life. Okay. It's a very tell, weird Tell thing. me your life. Tell me your, I want to, who are you? You're, you're clearly not a promoter. <laughs> I don't even know no, what that no, means, I'm but not you're not. <laughs> I'm not a promoter. So can you see this here? Um, yeah. So my, I ha- my giant version of that's similar to yours. I don't know where it is, but I have this one, which is basically, so I'm a maverick. A maverick. Which, yes, the one with the cool name. That's what I was told. When we did, we did this as a whole team and everyone was like, of course you got the one with the name. That's cool. Yeah. But basically a quote quote outside the box thinker who is undaunted by failure which i think is pretty true you're undaunted by failure can you like bottle that up and like ship it to me and then i'll drink it i can try and then i too can be a maverick but yeah i mean it's funny i think like this just like try very comfortable with risk really focused on the future makes decisions and takes action even with little proof confirming their decision (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think that's like, you know, a lot of the building Wistia has like made me even more of this, like that I am just very, very willing to take risks. And I don't, you know, I don't really worry about failure because I think that usually when you fail, if it's like a public thing and you fail, almost always failure means that no one sees it. Like it just didn't work. You know, like if we launch a product and it doesn't work, like no one pays attention. Yeah. And that sucks, but that's not that bad. But if you don't try, then you can't have any success. Like you got to try stuff. So yeah, I'm very, very hardwired to, to take yeah. risks. And I, and that's also one of the things that I've learned over the years. Like I have to work with people who balance that out, you know? So like on the senior management team at Wistia, a bunch of people who are risk takers, but also a lot of people who are very steady and organized and project managers. And like, because if everyone was like me, it would, it would be a mess. It'd be horrible. I mean, this makes so much sense. The little that I know about you, this makes so much sense. And it's it's kind of cool to see in writing that you are, um, that you're a maverick. No, that you, it, the fact that you can like sort of frame failure as an opportunity to learn something and to like do better. That's like a lesson I wish I could really internalize. I think- Failure is is a very, it's a scary concept for me. Um, but I think if I embraced it yeah. a little more. Well, it's, it's funny. I remember when we started Wistia, we were really, we were really afraid of failure. And we were really afraid of like having our friends and our peers and our families see us fail. Mm. And so I had this insane motivation to succeed just because I didn't want to be wrong. 
Um, but then to get to actually succeed, we had to take a million risks. And so there was a lot of stuff that we did that didn't work. But I think that like, because we could do something every day that didn't work, eventually some, we found stuff that did, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's a simple thing. And I, and I think that part of the thing that's cool about the B, the PI, but any kind of behavioral assessment is like, you know, you would, we, you, Sylvia and I, we don't know each other that well, right? Like we've been doing this podcast together, but this is kind of like the beginning of our working relationship, friendship, right? And figuring out those things is actually becomes really helpful to figure out how to better work together. Yeah. I'm curious, was there a moment of failure that put you more at ease with like future failures? We started with, I remember having a conversation with an investor before we were ready to raise money. And I didn't understand anything about raising money. I didn't understand anything about building a business. I was probably like, I was like three weeks into the idea. Mm. And I, I met this guy who was like a friend of my sister's. And you know, you just you know, people always do that. It's like, oh yeah, my cousin's friend, my sister's like, you know, college roommate, whatever. It's just like one of those deals. <laughs> sister's college roommate. And I like my talked to this guy cousin. and I was like, Yeah, exactly. And I was like, hey, yeah, I'm gonna start this company, I have all these ideas. You know, we're gonna do this like competition thing, and blah, 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 like and then and and I was like, Do you think do you think you would want to to give us money to do this? And he was like, no, 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 this isn't a good idea. No, this is, this is a bad idea. And like, I was just so embarrassed. And I remember being like kind of mortified that like I had even asked these questions. Mm. Like I had no idea that how you got money or what you did. I knew nothing about it. And then I remember probably like, it's like a week or two after that, that everything that guy had said had been true. You know, like it was like really quick that I realized how wrong we were. It's like, oh, of course, like this isn't going to happen. And like, th- I thought we were going to build the company and be wildly successful in six months. And he's like, no, it's going to take years. So it's not going to like, you serious? Six months? That's not going to work. Like things take too long. And like, oh, he basically just like, it felt like a massive failure to go to someone I knew and be so embarrassed that everything I said was wrong. But then two weeks later, we were already trying different stuff because of that. And I was like, oh, that's funny. Like, we're changing our ideas. We're doing things because I looked like an idiot, like a moron. And I felt like f- like I had failed. But actually, uh, I'm learning really fast. And it kind of like set off this thing early where I realized I need to ask for a lot of help. And that's okay to ask for help. No one has the answers, really. Uh, but the faster I ask for help, and if I look like an idiot, the faster I'm going to learn. And I think that was like a very simple think but i had never done that it's like it's not like you're in college or just doing anything you're like i think i'm gonna start a company tomorrow and i can do you know like who do i go at no there's no one to ask so it was like a very humbling experience that definitely i think accelerated the process of being willing to like put ideas out there and let people tell you that they're bad totally it's like it became a kind of propeller failure yeah and there's like this fear when you're starting that your idea has to be perfect. Mm. And so uh, often people won't even tell others because like you don't want someone to like poke a hole in it and eventually realize all you want is for people to poke holes in it. Cause if people poke a ton of holes in it and you still love the idea, maybe it will actually work. You know, like it's, it's actually a helpful part of the process. Word. I'm going to spend the rest of the day taking some risks, maybe doing a few fails but uh, growing, growing in this process and like 
actually really trying to kind of believe that. <laughs> um, Perfect. All right. That's all for this episode. We hope that you'll tune in in two weeks to hear our next exciting guest. We may also hear about what happened to the hail in Sylvie's apartment. Did they patch that hole? Is it still leaking? How's the flood in my basement? Did I watch the rest of Floor's Lava? Tune in to find out. Can't wait. (laughs) Talking Too Loud is brought to you by Wistia. Hosted by Chris Savage. Produced by me, Sylvie Lubau, along with Adam Day. Executive produced by Wistia Studios. This episode was mixed by Josh Solarski. Listen to Talking Too Loud wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey, rate and review us wherever you listen. And check out more content from Wistia Studios at wistia.com. 